Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, well, a little bit of everything, actually, uh, Richard. We don't usually do this on the Libertarian, but here in the, the dog days of summer, we're going to do a little sampler platter this week of legal issues in the news. So why don't you and I start here? The National Labor Relations Board ruled earlier this week that graduate students at private universities have the right to unionize. Why don't I just have you start this way by having you explain what the NLRB's rationale is here and, and how it compares with their previous take on this topic. Well, the NR, the National Labor Relations Board is notorious for flip-flops on virtually every issue. And on this one in the Bush administration, when the Republicans had the majority, there was a case involving Brown universities in which it was said essentially that the mixed obligations of a student and employee um, were so complicated that you were to take them entirely out from the NLRA, from the National Labor Relations Act. Uh, this time, there are now three Democrats and only one Republican on the board, and by a three-to-one vote, they overturned that decision, saying that Brown had unnecessarily deprived uh, graduate students of the right to organize over the last 12 years, and they were determined to set it aright. Uh, there seems to be a sense that this is going to be done immediately. There were statements that I read today personally from both Yale University and from the University of Chicago by presidents who were very pessimistic about this, claiming they thought it would disrupt the relationship that exists between graduate students and their mentors and would create other difficulties. There was a discussion of the voluntary agreement that was entered into by NYU prior to this particular ruling, um, which seems to have had some degree of rockiness in terms of its administration, but has by no means fallen apart. Um, and it's quite clear that this is going to be a major sea change. Uh, it will affect great universities like the ones that I've just mentioned, and it will affect lesser institutions. And there's just an enormous question as to whether or not you can actually tease out the business side of this and have a union, in this case I think it's the UAW, know enough about university culture that when it comes to negotiating the collective bargaining agreement and processing grievances under it, um, that the university will be able to do its uh, essential mission. This is very much a work in progress. My guess is it will be appealed um, given the fact that we are shifting left on the courts as well as on the National Labor Relations Board. The odds are better than even that this will be uh, affirmed notwithstanding the fact that it's a departure from prior practice. Best guess, Richard, if it is affirmed, as someone who works in higher education, what do you anticipate the practical effects are going to be here? How is this going to change the experience for graduate well, students? Nobody really knows. I mean, in the law school, it will have virtually no effect because we don't use postdocs. And so I've never been in a situation where I've had somebody teach a small section for me on the one hand um, who is now also going to um, uh, be subject to a guidance with respect to a thesis. And the fear that I think everybody has is it will create a kind of rigidity. And 
And so when you start negotiating a collective bargaining agreement and you start talking about RAs and TAs, uh, this is probably more in the teaching assistant than the research assistant, although it could extend to that. Suppose you have a university that wants to shift its emphasis to beef up a department to cut back somewhere else. Are you going to have to negotiate with the union anytime you wish to change this or you'd be able to get a management rights clause, uh, as it's commonly called, which gives you a chance to switch your resources back and forth between different areas. Um, In terms of what the students want, it's pretty clear everywhere uh, that the number one issue is health care. It's equally clear that virtually every major research university has made major strides in trying to meet that particular demand. And so the question is whether or not when you get a union, you're going to go over the top or whether you're going to keep it in balance. There's obviously going to be issues with respect to salary. I think those issues are actually much less important in the long run uh, than the question of how it is that you keep a close relationship when there's an adversary and when on all issues that pertain to the working side of this arrangement, uh, having direct contacts with the worker is always problematic if what is going to be introduced is some change from what the master agreement calls. That is, under the standard collective bargaining rationales, employers could always speak to their workers about tasks within the agreement, but if somebody wants to say, look, you know, we'd like to change your hours in the following way, and those hours are dictated or established by the collective bargaining agreement, at that point you then have to go through the union. It is very well known that there are all sorts of subtle conflicts between union members that can surface up in many ways, and so if one set of union workers wants to do this and another set of graduate students wants to do that, um, there can be all sorts of negotiations internal to the union which could leave the um, university caught in the crossfire. Uh, I cannot see any systematic improvement in the overall excellence of universities that come from this. I can see some financial gains to the individual students. Uh, Those are not easy to deal with given tight budgets everywhere that we have, Uh, but I do think that the educational side is actually harder to quantify, but in the long run may turn out to be more important. I'll pivot you to another issue now, one that we we can't seem to avoid in 2016. So earlier this year, the Obama Justice and Education Departments sent a letter to public schools saying that students should be able to use bathrooms based on their gender identity as opposed to their biological gender. This, of course, the, the bigger sort of transgender bathroom debate. And now, Richard, we have an injunction out of a federal court in Texas saying that the Obama administration overstepped here. Break down the legal case for us. Well, I mean, one has to understand that the modern sensibilities exert an enormous influence on the interpretation of provisions that were added into the Civil Rights Act in 1964 or 1973, depending on what statute it turns out you're dealing with. And at those particular days when they were saying that, you know, you cannot discriminate on the grounds of sex, a word which has gone out of favor, it meant that you could not say that secretarial jobs would be reserved for women and construction jobs would be reserved for men. And in fact, one of the first things the government did was it said that when you now put out help wanted ads, you can no longer divide them into male and female, which had been the practice since time immemorial. So there was obviously a huge change that takes place. Gender identity is really very much more difficult topic than this. Everybody understands that it turns out that if you actually have somebody undergoing a gender transformation, preparing for sex change, 
exchange operations or sex reassignment operations and so forth. Once it's done, the answer has always been that if you started male and ended female, you always use female facilities and nobody cared about it. And one of the difficulties with using the designation at birth rate, are you now going to send transgendered women into the men's room and transgendered men into the women's room? It all sounds quite crazy. Um, what is more difficult about this is gender identification. You know, give them bathrooms of their choice. There are huge externalities in this. Some, you know, uh, six foot two and strapping guys goes into the ladies' room saying, I feel female today. I mean, there's just going to be a lot of people who are going to freak out. And so my guess is if you're talking about teenagers and so forth, the parental sentiment on this issue is going to be about 99 to 1 against these kinds of shifts. And one of the kind of surrealistic experiments you could do is say, are you really serious about this? So now what we do is we have all these rules about how it is that we deal with athletic programs which are divided by sex. And everybody understands from the beginning of time that nobody says you have only integrated teams. What you do is you have a men's team and a woman's team and the the anti-discrimination rationale plays out by how much money you can spend on this team, how much money on that. So now what you just have to do is to fast forward and say, well, if it turns out we're talking about Title VII, it also applies not just to bathrooms, but to athletics. So any man who wants to self-identify by a woman could get into the pool with Katie Ledecky and beat her like 15 seconds just as she beats all the other women by 10 or 11 seconds. Nobody wants to have that. It would be the death and ruination of women's athletics, the worst thing that could happen. But if you've got this broad statute, all of a sudden people are going to be talking about this. So what the judge did is he says, look, um, I give a preliminary injunction when I think there's a pretty heavy burden that you have to meet that something's gone wrong. And he says, I can't conceive of how this statute could apply to the kinds of things that they want. It goes against the obvious text of the statute. It introduces notions that were unfathomable 60 years ago. It disrupts ordinary activities. It's inconsistent with every precedent which was decided on this particular question until the last two years. It's the representative, as he would say, of an overheated Obama Civil Rights Division, which has caused so much damage in so many other areas. He thought that they would do it. And you can see that the usual suspects will come out and will denounce that particular decision. I think it's long overdue. I mean, my own view about this is that the original view that they took when they worried about this with bathrooms and high schools in Charlotte is the right one. You cannot basically, when there has been no sex change operation, sort of force the men into the women's bathrooms and vice versa. But if you have a kid with serious psychological situations, you make an accommodation by giving them a changing room of their own. And what's so unforgivable, in my view, about the ACLU is they say all of these accommodations are devastating psychologically to the people who are asked to make them. But in a world of accommodations, everybody has to give a little and get a little. And it's this kind of rigidity that is going to basically put the civil rights movement in a collision clause with the common sentiments of parents. When you get older and in your workplace and the question of what kinds of jobs you give, I think the uh, tension and the heat's going to go down. But if you start looking at the bathroom and you start looking at for kids who are in loco parentis, it seems to me that the judge made the right call. There's a reasonable chance at this point, Richard, that some of these transgender issues are going to require the Supreme Court to resolve. With these kinds of hot-button social issues, you often hear the argument on one side that it's a mistake to steer them through the courts, that if you move them through the democratic process and you engage in this kind of civic dialectic, it, it gets you to this more harmonious outcome eventually, even if it may take longer. On the other hand, you have people that say 
No, when it comes to civil rights, that's precisely when we need the courts to sweep in because we shouldn't be letting majorities decide what rights people do or don't have. I realize I'm presenting this to you somewhat in the abstract, and, and maybe your answer here varies by issue, but do you have a decisive preference for one of those arguments? Over well, there? no, and uh, I think it's exactly your right, said the rabbi to the one side, and your right, said the rabbi to the <laughs> other, who absolutely disagreed with him. So uh, let me sort of refer to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who on many occasions in public has opined that she thought it would have been much better if Roe v. Wade had not been done by judicial decision, precisely because the legitimacy question was really very difficult. And even as of 1973, when the decision came down, there were perhaps a quarter of a million legal abortions in the United States. You solve it by states. You figure out what to do about rape or what about incest. You don't get into all of this stuff about the trimesters as being dispositive. And you probably would end up in a better place than you have ended up by the current kinds of decisions. Um, uh, Other people say, nope, just as you said, it's too important. Now, if this were Jim Crow, I mean, my own view is I thought the court was right in Brown v. Board of Education to try to end it once and for all. But the thing that I find so troublesome about this is I don't see what the close case is with racial segregation being introduced by the state. But I think it's a real abuse of analogy to argue that when you're trying to make these accommodations with respect to transgender kid, all you're trying to do is to reinstitute another regime of Jim Crow oppression and so forth. What that does is it casts a huge claim of bad faith against every administrator who's trying to deal with all these preferences and every parent who's trying to figure out what's going on. And so in this particular case, I think short-sighting the democratic process is wrong because the claim for discrimination based on historical oppression and constitutional law and the statutory framework, which remember was in the Civil Rights Act of 1964, all of this is made up. The idea that anybody thought that sex covered transgender arrangement in 1964 is preposterous. And so I don't like having radical distensions there. Just the way as with the National Labor Relations Act, I'm very, very uneasy about having major structural changes take place through the board. I do think in these cases, democratic processes are correct. If you isolate single individuals for confiscation, capital punishment, and so forth, obviously the protection of individual liberties and bodily integrity has to dominate. Last issue that I'll ask you about today. Voting rights for convicted felons. It's been sort of in the atmosphere recently, and it's back in the news this week because Terry McAuliffe, the governor of Virginia, is now restoring voting rights for certain convicted felons. who they, These are people who have served their sentences and completed parole or, or probation. He's doing it on a piecemeal basis now after having a much more sweeping effort struck down by the state Supreme Court in Virginia. Um, Richard, your, your reaction to this on a principles level, does it make sense to – I guess two questions. Does it make sense to impair voting rights in the first place based on criminal behavior, and should there be a road to restitution once someone's essentially paid the prize for their crimes? Well, I regard this as actually a much more difficult question than Mr. McAuliffe. He was clearly wrong on separation of powers grounds. He did not have the power to issue a blanket pardon. And I think he's wrong to pretend that you could escape that by sending one after another individually without doing the kind of bona fide separate case that you need. So I would strike 
write this one down as well. As a principled matter, again, it's uh, your right and your right too. So suppose what we do is we assume that we only want people who have decent character to vote. And one of the people whom we manage to uh, convict and to have serve five years is a known swindler and fraud. Uh, you may let them out of prison, but now you know something about their character. And the argument is made quite simply. There's no evidence that these people have reformed. And so to allow them to vote is to pollute the democratic process by introducing into the mix people who have no business doing it because they have now demonstrated character and that the adverse things that they have demonstrated are not cured by a prison sentence which is served, they still persist. And then on the other hand, somebody's going to come back and say, rank speculation. There are many people who change, reform themselves and so forth. And what you're doing is basically now condemning people on actions that they did year before. And then the third guy comes along and he says, look, um, I can't figure out how you're going to do this on a case-by-case basis. Um, it's just too difficult to figure out what's going on. People can purge themselves. You don't know who's allowed to testify against them and so on. Uh, so I want an up-or-down rule. And therefore, if it's always been down, I don't want to change this. And then on top of that, there's always the political motivation, which is actually kind of difficult. Are these felons Democrats or Republicans? Because there's no question that the forensic issues of the positions of the party are going to be influenced by whether they think they're getting more votes or not. That's certainly the way it plays out with respect to vote fraud. And I think there have been one or two studies on this, which says that uh, many times when you're starting to talk about prisoners, it's not so clear that they're all going to vote liberal Democrat. But then if you decide to do this on the basis of percentage black and Hispanic, you kind of doubt all of that stuff. It may vary by state by state. It's the sort of thing on which there can be enormously, shall we say, contentious and exaggerated statements like Mr. McCullough. I actually think it's a rather hard case. Um, My own view is if I had to do a compromise, it would be if you serve for more than 10 years, I don't think that you could then vote there afterwards. If it turns out it's for a petty minor offense, that is a low-level felony, whatever that is, then I might be able to say that you can do it if you've waited five years or something of that particular sort. So I do think that you could get bright-line rules which will allow some felons to vote afterwards, but not necessarily immediately upon departure, which suggests if you're going to try and work one of these things, you're probably going to be better off doing it through legislation than having some court invent some particular rule based on some mysterious constitutional right. All right. All the way around the horn. Thank you, Richard. My pleasure. And thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Corey Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.